everybody. I'm glad to be back with you. We're going to be studying over the next six weeks uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to be looking at uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount from the book of Matthew. So if you have your Bibles today, I hope you will grab those and maybe a piece of paper and pencil uh, so that you can um, take some notes and uh, follow along. So uh, to start with, I want to share a quote with you from Eleanor Roosevelt. She said this, happiness is not a goal, it is a byproduct. I tend to agree with that statement. I think happiness is the result of positive action. And the Sermon on the Mount deals with how we can be happy. Jesus gives us eight happiness statements, and we're really going to look at those. It stretches across three chapters, the Sermon on the Mount does. Um, in the Gospel of Matthew, and over the course of the next few weeks, we're going to look at different parts of this sermon. Um, remember that during Jesus' time on earth, legalism and the rituals of the temple and the Jewish customs had really become burdensome and lifeless for the people. So Jesus came, and he came speaking about love and faith and a true change in attitude. He wasn't saying that people shouldn't obey God's laws, but he was saying that obedience should bring joy to the heart. Imagine the setting. Jesus is on a hillside with the Sea of Galilee spread out behind him. People have gathered to hear what this man, who many believed to be a prophet, had to say. They knew of his healing powers, but they didn't know that he was the Son of God. They are drawn to him because he's different from the religious leaders of the temple. He just has a joy and a love that flows from him. And here on this hillside, Jesus of Nazareth begins to talk to them and to teach them. The scripture calls the people gathered their disciples, but there were way more than just the twelve with him on this hillside. Estimates are that there could have been thousands gathered there. And he begins teaching them by talking of happiness. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, um, and we're going to just look at what is called the Beatitudes. Um, reading with the beginning of verse 1 of chapter 5 in Matthew, it says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will show, be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So, we'll stop there today, and I want, I want to uh, point out something, that this selection of verses gives us guidelines for living a Christ-like life. Think back to the quote, um, happiness is not a goal, it is a byproduct. In the Beatitudes, Jesus gives us a totally different view of happiness. Happiness isn't or shouldn't be determined by our circumstances. In other words, we should be happy because God is in our hearts, 
We should be happy sometimes despite our circumstances. Did you know that the word blessed means happiness in Greek? So when the first five books of the Bible were translated into Greek, this same word was used to describe the type of happiness that comes from divine favor. In other words, what makes God happy? So if we wanted to, in each of these statements, instead of saying blessed are, we could say, what makes God happy? Or happiness is, okay? And so I want us to look at these eight character traits that Jesus outlines because he says that if these are practiced, we should it should bring about happiness for us as Christians. He says uh, each, each, each statement is similar in structure. It, each one begins with blessed are or happiness is. Jesus tells us that the people who exhibit these character traits are blessed or happy. And then each verse describes a trait or a quality that makes this person blessed. And finally, each verse describes why this person who lives out this trait should be blessed or happy. Um, so let's start with verse 3. The very first one, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does this really mean? Well, to start, Jesus uses a word for poor that in the English is translated destitute or bankrupt. For those of for, uh, for us, those words really are stronger than the simple word poor, right? Blessed are the bankrupt in spirit. That sounds a whole lot worse than just poor in spirit. If we're poor, it means we have not. It means we're lacking something, right? So in his book titled The End of Me, pastor and author Kyle Eidelman describes this as really a shocking statement that Jesus makes. He says, and I'm quoting, Jesus is saying that God's kingdom begins in us when we come to the end of ourselves and realize we have nothing to offer. It is the exact opposite of the assumptions made by the world. When we come to the end of ourselves. I want you to keep that in, the, in your mind because Eidelman's book is called The End of Me. And in this book, he really looks at these eight happiness what I call happiness statements, right? The Beatitudes. And he, and he shows us how Jesus is really turning upside down the thoughts that people would have had in his time period. Um, he, he's, he's almost inverting these statements, making us think, well, that's really the opposite of what you would expect. Eidelman uses the story of a prostitute who washes Jesus' feet and then dries his feet with her hair as the perfect metaphor for this idea of bankrupt in spirit. Now, I'm not going to read that for you because I want you to go and look it up on your own. If you have a piece of paper and a pencil handy, write down the scripture, Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36. We get the story that is used in Eidelman's book to illustrate this blessed are the poor in spirit or blessed are the bankrupt in spirit. From this story, and there are three main characters in the story, Simon, who's a religious leader, the prostitute, and then Jesus himself. And I want you, I really want you to read not just Luke, but I hope that you will um, be curious enough after we get through these eight happiness statements to also look up Kyle Ottoman's book, The End of Me. Um, but in his book, his conclusion about this story is simple. Simon, who appears to have it all together, is actually more broken than the prostitute. Why? 
because she realizes she is bankrupt in spirit. Simon does not. And so she is blessed by Jesus and Simon is rebuked. That may seem odd at first, but so do the rest of these eight happiness statements. You see, our blessings come when we admit to our brokenness. The fact that we are bankrupt in spirit and then we allow Jesus to make us whole again. All right, happiness statement number two. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. I love that Jesus speaks truth. He doesn't tell us that everything's going to be great, that we're going to have success, and to know God is to know only happiness. That's the prosperity gospel that some of our world's leading religious speakers like to focus on. But Jesus doesn't go there with us. He tells us that in our life, we will know sorrow. We will experience sadness. And that in the midst of that sorrow and in the midst of mourning, we can call on our God and know that we are comforted. Eidelman says in his book, when life gets extremely difficult, when we experience the deepest suffering we've ever encountered, when we come, again, here's that statement, to the end of ourselves, then we are blessed. The bigger picture of this beatitude is that we are sinners. And when we recognize and own up to our sin, we should feel true sorrow over it because we have God in our hearts and we've been called to repentance. This kind of sorrow or mourning leads to grace and forgiveness. This is the essence of what we believe when we believe in the cross. Eidelman calls us to really think about how we view sin in our lives and in the lives of others. He asks, is there any of us out there mourning? He says, where is the man who weeps over his selfishness and pride? Where is the woman who weeps over her gossip and her vanity? You know, we, we all fall into sin, and we are all slow to face it or to mourn it. Yet the longer we wait to mourn, the longer we delay the blessing of God that comes with forgiveness. All right, happiness statement number three. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The dictionary defines the word meek as meaning quiet, gentle, or submissive, also obedient. So here Jesus is saying happiness is being submissive to God and allowing ourselves to be humble and to trust in God's plan for our lives. By doing this, by submitting our will to God's will, we're giving up our self-centered ways and becoming more God-focused. Then Jesus says the meek will inherit the earth. He isn't talking about the physical earth as we know it. He's talking about the new heaven and new earth promised in Revelation chapter 21. If you have time, go back and read Revelation chapter 21, starting with verse 1. I love how one of the commentaries says this. The Christian is the spiritual citizen of the kingdom of heaven now. In other words, when we become Christian, we're living out the kingdom of heaven now in this world. That is our calling. But we all have to admit that calling is difficult. Jesus says greatness comes from humility. Yet the world rewards the opposite. The world rewards the CEO, the Hollywood star, the wealthy, the movers and the shakers. Not really humble folks. However, pride was the downfall of the Pharisees. 
They were proud of their actions and their behaviors. They were proud that they were different than the lowest of the low. And they let God know how good they were. Yet look at Christ's actions. He made himself nothing to save us all. A couple of examples that Eidelman gives in his book are, to humble ourselves, we must voluntarily confess sin. To humble ourselves, we must give sacrificially and anonymously. To humble ourselves, we must treat others better than we treat ourselves. To humble ourselves, we must be willing to ask for help. These are the things that it means to be meek. These are why we will be blessed. All right, happiness statement number four. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Righteousness is just a big old church word that basically means moral or just or good. God is righteous. And I don't mean this like they meant it in the 70s when they said, dude, that is righteous. Although really you could say that about God and it would be completely true, right? So here Jesus is telling us that true happiness comes when we hunger and thirst for that goodness, that perfection that is found only in God. And the only way to have righteousness is through faith in Christ. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3, verse 22, write that one down. Romans 3, 22 says that righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Now, in our world today, many of us are empty, and we're filling our hearts and our souls with tasks and with things, with busy schedules and gadgets and toys, with Facebook and Instagram, with excuses, with romance, with children, with work. What takes up the space in our lives that is meant for God. At the end of the day, why do we still feel empty? Mother Teresa says this, the spiritual poverty of the Western world, that's us, is much greater than the physical poverty of the people in Calcutta. You in the West have millions of people who suffer such terrible loneliness and emptiness. These people are not hungry in the physical sense, but they are in another. They know they need something more than money, yet they don't know what it is. What they are missing, really, is a living relationship with God. You see, true fulfillment comes only with a daily relationship with God. Our physical bodies need food and water to survive. We get hungry and thirsty daily, and we have to replenish ourselves. Our spiritual selves need the same replenishment. Jesus tells us that happiness comes when we replenish ourselves with what God offers, with his goodness, with his righteousness. I love the image of food and water because, well, you know, Christ, bread and wine. Christ for us is the fulfillment of all that we hunger and thirst for. All right, we're up to happiness statement number five. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. The word mercy implies generosity, compassion, forgiveness. As Christ followers, we show the same characteristics that Christ himself showed. Christ on the cross said, Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Even at the most horrible, most painful physical moment, Christ is actually pouring out mercy for us. Make no mistake, we are not saved because we show mercy or forgiveness to others. We show mercy because we're saved, because our hearts are changed by the Spirit of God. All right. The next statement, blessed are the pure in heart, 
In the New Testament, the book of Titus, chapter 2, verses 13 through 14, tells us, While we wait for the blessed hope, that appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own. Christ purified us. He made us holy through his blood on the cross. I love this beatitude or this happiness statement because I think it's saying more than what it seems to be saying. Okay? And it says there in the number six, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. It says, Blessed are the pure in heart. I don't think Jesus only, meant only that we will see God in heaven one day. That is true, and it is a promise. But I think he was saying if we remain pure in heart, we can see God at work in our lives and in the lives of others every day. Even though we're living in a sinful world, if we truly believe that through Jesus Christ our lives are transformed, then that same grace gives us a pure heart. And through that pure heart, we see God. We see him at work in our fellow Christians, in our own lives, and we see what he does when he transforms the lives of those around us. That purity of heart opens our eyes to God. All right, happiness statement number seven. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. All right. Jesus is not talking about social reform. He isn't talking about us being peacemakers in a world of strife. He's talking about the peace that comes from having a spiritual rightness with God. When we have God in our hearts, we are or should be at peace because we know in whom we believe, we know what awaits us, and we know that death cannot hold us. There's no fear. Therefore, we're at peace. We are sons of God, brothers and sisters to Christ. All of these character traits emphasize a transformed life, a transformed spirit. Christ, you see, is telling the disciples and us that only those who have truly experienced a character change will inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, when we accept Christ into our hearts, we should be changed. And those around us should be able to see the change in our outward behavior, in our character, in the way we approach life. You can't claim to be a Christian or claim Christ and continue to live the same old ways. It's impossible to do because there is in you the spirit that creates a desire for something better, something different, something more. Our final happiness statement tonight is blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We know what this one means. We know that Christians are going to be persecuted. Some are outright killed and tortured for their beliefs. Others of us experience isolation from friends and family. We're looked on as Jesus freaks, misunderstood, made to stand out by the world. Yet we are told that we are not to conform to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Well, what if this statement was more about weaknesses and strengths? All right, hear me out. We are taught to focus on our strengths, to highlight the things we do well, to play off our strengths, to showcase them. We try to hide our weaknesses. We try to deny them and ignore them. But I want to share a story of how through one woman's weakness, God was glorified. Eidelman shares this story in his book, The End of Me, and I want to read you the story. All right. Corrie Ten Boom is best known as the author of The Hiding Place, an account of her time as a prisoner in a German concentration camp and as a witness for Jesus. She wrote another book, less well known, titled 
Tramp for the Lord, in which she told about a woman she met in Russia during the Cold War when Christians were being persecuted. The old woman, Corey wrote, was reclining on a sofa. Multiple sclerosis had done quite a job on this woman. Her body was twisted in every direction, and she depended on pillows to prop her up. She had no mobility, so her husband's time was consumed by her care. The index finger of her right hand was all she could control, nothing else. But oh, what she got from that finger. It moved across a typewriter keyboard all day and late into the night, tapping out words and sentences and paragraphs as she translated the Bible and other Christian books into her Russian language. Her husband watched and noticed that it often took the wrinkled old finger quite a long time to hit a key, but on it moved letter by letter through books of the Bible. And then Corey Ten Boom came to visit. She looked at the twisted skeletal frame on the sofa and compassion overcame her. And she prayed, oh Lord, why don't you heal this poor woman? The husband saw how deeply moved the visitor was, and he said to her, God has a purpose in her sickness. Every other Christian in the city is watched closely by the secret police. But because she has been so sick for so long, no one ever looks in on her. They leave us alone, and she is the only person who can translate undetected by the police. It's inaccurate to say that God worked despite her weakness. The truth is, is that he was glorified through her weakness in a powerful way. You would feel sorry for that woman just as I would, but the very thing we'd wish and pray away, the very thing apparently destroying her life, the prickly thorn causing so much pain, was a holy place that allowed a very weak woman to become a pillar of strength in God's kingdom. You know, Eidelman goes on to say that God is always strong, but in our weakness, that strength goes viral. The world sees that it's not about anything but God. And at the end of us, at the end of me, I find a strength in God that I never would have experienced otherwise. You know, both Eidelman's book, The End of Me, and the scriptures themselves, these eight happiness statements, help us to look at the fact that Jesus is teaching us that we have to let go of ourselves to be able to accept God. As we close our discussion tonight, I want to leave you thinking about your own life as it relates to each of these eight happiness statements. At some point this week, grab a piece of paper and make some notes about yourself. I know that's just really uncomfortable to do. But look internally and discover if you are truly happy truly blessed. If you find yourself lacking, as I did, then know that only when we come to the end of ourselves can we find the grace of Jesus. Next week, we will look at, a little bit further into chapter 5, at the statement about salt and light. You know those verses. You are the salt of the earth, Jesus said. I hope you'll join me again next time. Thanks, and God bless.